Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. The world of multifamily apartment investing has gotten crowded. There's infinitely more demand than supply, and there's little differentiation in the marketplace. After buying an online real estate course three years ago, today's guest took 18 months to find his first deal. It was in Tucson, and he ended up hitting it out of the park by almost doubling the value of a 42-unit apartment building in less than two years. Tyler Mitchell, multifamily apartment investor, has subsequently bought three more deals in Arizona and is doing incredibly well. So today we have with us yet another rising star in the multifamily syndication business and investor. This guy is a podcaster. He's doing all kinds of interesting things and is enjoying some great success early on. And I want to uh, welcome Kyle Mitchell to Street Smart Success. Hey, Roger. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Like I said, Kyle, I'm doing much better than I deserve. <laughs> Thank I you hear for- you on that one. Thank you for asking. And so you are down, I believe, at the southern end of the Golden State. Uh, Is that correct? I am for another month and a half, but I'll be actually moving over to Arizona. Uh, Many people are moving out of California. I'll be one of those people and going to reside in the Scottsdale area. Gosh, my wife literally said, because we're we're at the other end of kind of our life cycle. And that mean, makes it sound like I'm ready to die. That's not what I meant. But we're like, have kids. Kids are almost out of the house. And we're thinking like where we leave to leave California. And literally last night, my wife's like, shouldn't we go see Scottsdale? Because I was on a, a business call a couple years ago and we had to have go have lunch with somebody in, in Scottsdale. And we're not, I'm not a huge Phoenix fan, but we were up And I think North Scottsdale, I believe. And it was so beautiful. I came back to my wife and said, this is a place that was absolutely beautiful and just pristine. And so anyway, uh, it's kind of funny you say that. Yeah, we're excited to move there. It's a a beautiful place for sure. And if you can stand the heat during the summers, you're going to be okay. Yeah. So my business colleague and I, a number of years ago, were in Phoenix in July. And we rented a baseline cheap rent a car truthfully and it was like i don't remember but you know like a toyota corolla or something right we were just being cheap honestly so it was 117 degrees outside it was so hot that even the air conditioning in this car could not cool us off yeah that it does get that hot (laughs) it 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 gets and you know the the previous real record for me in terms of heat i think was 105 which had been another time that i had been in phoenix and uh that was doable i mean 105 wasn't you know because it's you know it's a cliche it's dry heat so but 117 is that is a whole story and so that's why they all go to i believe you're in san diego now correct uh i'm in uh like 30 minutes north uh south of la so right on the border of orange county and la county okay what town uh santa fe springs okay so you're not not quite down in san diego that's why all the arizonans that can afford to they go to san diego in the summertime um kyle are you born and raised in in that part of california yeah born and raised in the long beach area of southern california lived here my whole life so it'd be a big move moving to arizona but i'm excited about it um but yeah been down here my whole life so far you know, I uh, I live in Alameda. It's very close to Oakland, and people have compared Oakland and Long Beach. They're both port towns, very very diverse. And um, I think that I I like Long Beach a lot. I do think there are some similarities, but I I kind of think Long Beach is cooler. Yeah, I mean, I've been to both. I'm a big Oakland Raider, or well, I was an Oakland Raiders fan. Now it's Las Vegas Raiders. So I, I go up there and watch the games often. And I, I definitely like Long Beach much better. I, I do too. And I love Belmont Shores. It's super cool. I would live there in a second. So I know why you're moving to Arizona, but instead of being uh, so presumptuous, let me just ask you the question. Why are you moving to Arizona? Well, that's where our business is. You know, we buy 
apartments in Arizona and Tucson and Phoenix. And the business that we're in is all about relationship building and being boots on the ground and being able to be there in front of people like the brokers, investors, our assets. Um, is important to continue to grow and build in this in this industry. So that's the main reason. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of things. A lot of people moving out of California. Things are still locked down out here. Prices are very expensive. So if you don't take advantage of everything California has to offer, which you know the weather is amazing, the beaches are great, but we don't really go to the beach that often and take advantage of it. So it's much cheaper living out there. Your money goes further. But the main reason behind the reason why we're moving is is our business. Do you have any kids yet? No. When did you guys get married? It'll be two years in July. So just a little over a year and a half now. If you take anything away from this podcast, just one thing, Kyle, never have kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will, I'll go no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm kidding. Um, so I got to ask you a question here. You work for, is it American? It was, I think it's American Golf Corporation. Yep for a while so like in addition to working there are you like a golf aficionado and because you worked there a, a long time maybe you tell me about that it sounds kind of cool yeah so i worked in the golf business since i was 16 i worked for um, american golf for 20 years uh for the most of that 20 years i was a general manager and a regional manager for them um and i oversaw several golf courses and uh, i've been playing golf since i was 13 and so, yeah, I actually even played golf at a, you know, high school, collegiate, and then mini tour professional golfer. So a lot of people think professional golfer and, you know, PGA tour did not make it anywhere near that level, but there's many tours around Southern California that I played in for a few years, um, didn't work out. And then that's when I got into being in the uh, golf management business full time. So what was your handicap? Uh, I was a scratch golfer. Um, so, you know, and, and I'm probably a single digit now on most of the golf courses that I'm familiar with. Um, if I'm playing a brand new golf course, it's, a, it's a little higher than that. Well, so, so let me connect a couple dots. I mean, anybody that could play scratch golf and, and I'm somebody that, you know, when I played golf as a kid, there were two requirements for me. Number one, a cart, actually three, number one, a cart. Uh, number two, <laughs> a sufficient amount of beer. And number three, a, su a sufficient amount of dope. And if I had those three, I was good to go. And I generally shot about 150 and nine. Oh, wow. Got it. So you were not out there to play golf. You were out there to have fun. Yeah, but I'd still get pissed off. I mean, because it's still an annoying sport when you suck at it. So, so from that perspective, I look at a scratch golfer like you and I go, this guy has got nerves of steel, which is going to be very, very helpful to you as you continue to be an entrepreneur in multifamily syndication and investing. Yeah, I think golf taught me a lot. It's a great sport, but it's also an individual sport, right? So you control your destiny. And that's a lot about what being an entrepreneur is. You know, there is that team aspect, but also you got to have that drive, determination and focus. And so that's a lot of what that uh, sport taught me. Um, and I built a ton of relationships through that, through that industry as well. You know, it's funny you say that because, you know, I've obviously been tongue in cheek with you on some of the stuff, but um, in my other, uh, my day job where, you know, I run an ad agency for many years, I love hiring athletes because of everything you just said and to mm -hmm. compete, compete at a certain level requires a certain amount of mental toughness, which is, you know, a great thing to have with any employee. So how, um, Kyle, did you go from the golf business to the real estate business? Yeah. You know, when I was originally in the golf business, I was moving up pretty quickly. I uh, got to a point where, uh, you know, the golf business over the last 10 years has been shrinking dramatically. Uh, so our company was shrinking. So there's not a lot of room for growth at that time. And this was back in probably 2015 when I started looking elsewhere. I just got tired of the daily grind. I was working six, seven days a week, you know, 80, 90 hours a week, driving 45 minutes each way. And so it just, I got burnt out. And I had been investing in real estate since 2010, just some small single family homes and things like that. But, um, you know, I started looking for another career and it found me, it took me two years to find where I'm doing now, which is multifamily syndication. But I was just always curious on other things I can do. I wanted to get into business for myself. And as soon as I found multifamily syndication, and, and it's funny, I, I found it doing just an online search. I found a course, I bought it. 
My wife and I took it and I just fell in love with the business aspect of it. I left my job 11 months later to pursue it full time. And I've been doing this now for two and a half years full time. And what course was it? Um, It was the Michael Blanc um, online course. So it was just uh, modules that were built online. It was like a thousand bucks at the time. And we went through it in three weeks. And, you know, being in golf, a lot of people are like, man, that's a tough transition, golf to apartments, you know, golf to real estate. And it really wasn't a huge transition because what I did on a day in, day out basis was managed people. I managed budgets, managed projects, implemented systems, held people accountable. Essentially, once you buy an apartment, you're running a business. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. They they get caught up in the sexy part of real estate, which is buying it and raising capital. But there's a there's a management side of things, and that's where I fit in pretty immediately is all those things I mentioned that I did in the golf business, I carried over and and now I apply them to apartment investing. I see. When you going back to 2010, when you said like you were investing in single family homes, were you yourself buying the homes and in and renovating them, or were you just investing with other people that were doing it? Or what does that mean? Yeah. So I was actually buying turnkey homes, which means I was buying them. uh, And I wouldn't suggest buying turnkey homes, but I was buying them sight unseen in the Midwest uh, from a provider who basically did all the legwork. They bought the house, they rehabbed it, they turned it into quote unquote rent ready quality. And then I would buy the home, rent it out and cash flow off those. And, you know, I had nine, I got up to nine and then I stopped. It's not a very scalable business. You're going to have to have 100, 200 of those types of houses in order to really see, um, you know, a lot of cash coming in is, which is what I wanted. And, um, unfortunately, you know, there's not a lot of appreciation in the houses I was buying. So, you know, made a little bit of a mistake there. I still made money, but could have made a lot more doing other things and probably doing a little bit more of the work on the front end. What markets were they in? Yeah, it was in, um, well, my first experience with real estate, I actually bought in Southern California and uh, had a great house, bought it at a great price, was cash flowing off it, but I put the wrong tenant in there. And, you know, they're, they call them professional tenants. They know how to play the game. And I was unable to get them out. It took me like eight months to get them out of the house. Terrible experience. And so I said, I am going to only invest in landlord-friendly states. And so my first couple houses I bought was in Arkansas. It's one of the most landlord-friendly states uh, there is. Um, and then I lost sight of my goals. And I said, hey, I want more cash flow. I wasn't cash flowing enough. So uh, my eyes got big. They saw dollar signs. I invested in Chicago, which is not a landlord-friendly state. High cash flow, but you know, higher crime, uh, high taxes, and not landlord-friendly. Uh, and then I went to Ohio in Dayton and bought some houses there, which is more landlord-friendly. So, you know, I did something similar in, and it was in Buffalo, New York, and it was section eight. And, um, it was one of the biggest mistakes I have, um, ever made, but I, I'm not going to dwell on that. That's a whole other chapter. Um, I bought them cause they were just so cheap and section eight, I thought that the money would be guaranteed by the government, which it is by the way, but, but then they leave every year and do more damage than the amount mm-hmm. of rent that you collect in a year. And, and it's a very, very, very ugly end to a very bad movie. But, um, in Arkansas, like what, where in Arkansas, like little rock or. Yep, exactly. You got it. Yeah. And then, you know, Dayton, little rock, Chicago, so did you end up, you know, I guess just in in the composite of things when all that was said and done in terms of the money that you invested, did you get a little cash flow? And I mean, do you have any of them still or, or do you sell them all? I am, I have two right now. There's one literally closing in two weeks and then I'll be I'll, I'll be stuck with one. Literally, I'm upside down on that one. It cash flows when there's a resident in there, which there is right now. So I'm going to hold on to it until I can sell it for a little bit more. This area has just been really bad and the, the values have tanked in this area. So uh, I'll have one. What market? That's is that in, in the Chicago area. Yeah, Dalton. Um, so stay out of Dalton if you're listening to this. <laughs> okay. Were these, um, I mean, class B neighborhoods, class C neighborhoods? I mean, I can't imagine, obviously, they're class A neighborhoods because those things never cash flow. Yeah. So for the most part, they're class C. You know, I think the Chicago ones, unfortunately, I bought them as a class C and now that's a D area. Um, it's just not gentrified at all. And so it's gone backwards. And so the one remaining house I have, I, I would classify that as a DD plus. 
So in Arkansas, and I'm just trying to get my head around it because I just absolutely love this stuff, which is why I do this podcast is so like in Dayton, in, you know, in Little Rock, what were you paying and what were rents, obviously, when they were rented thereabouts? Yeah. So, you know, we always try and do that 1% rule. So you want to, if you buy a house for $100,000, you want the rent to be $1,000. And that's about what we were buying them for. I was buying houses anywhere from 90 to 120,000. Rents were about, you know, 900 to $1,200. And you probably cash flow after you put some reserves and some vacancy reserves outside, probably 200 bucks a month. How much were you putting down on them? Uh, 20%. So, you know, 20 to $25,000. So, I mean, if you put down, I mean, this is where, you know, it's an interesting story. So, I mean, I'll go on the high side. If you put 20 down on, you know, 120 grand, right, you're putting down 25 grand, like in, in a perfect world scenario, if it's cash flowing 200 a month, you're making 10% on your money. But my experience is, you know, because you're like, 200 a month, you're roughly 2,500 a year, right? So it's 10% on 25 grand. My experience though, is that that never really materializes just because of miscellaneous and unideal things happen. I just made that word up, unideal. And over the years, I had some management in these scenarios because I also bought a ton of, like you did, turnkey stuff. And you know, some of the management wasn't bad. You hear the, the, the horror stories and some of it, it really did suck, but some of it wasn't that bad. But it seems like to really get 10% and have that be real and consistent, reliable is really hard to do, aside from your point of it being a hard business to scale. Was that your experience? Or do you think you were really able to clear that? And were there any great scenarios where it's like, nope, got the check, management was great, tenant stayed for a bunch of years, and everything was wonderful? You know, my Arkansas properties were probably the closest to that, but you're 100% correct. The, the performa numbers are best case scenario, in my opinion, and, you, and you're rarely going to get that. I mean, even when you have a, a resident move out, you're going to have to pay some money to turn the property. And if they really left it in bad shape, I had a couple that cost me four or $5,000, right? So that's two years of profit down the drain right there. And then the property management company charges you either half a month or one month's lease up. So that's going to be 900 bucks, 1200 bucks. So yeah, it, it does not work out the way the performance really state. Um, you know, the way I learned from a podcaster who, you know, I listened to a bunch of his podcasts. And on top of that 25,000, they also suggest you put in another five or $10,000 as a reserve account for those items. But that's how they get the, you know, cash on cash on their performance to look at look like they're 10% when they're really not. I mean, I, I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's four to 7%. Uh, if you're in that class C space, if you're in the class B and A space, you know, uh, it can be more consistent, but it's harder to cash flow for sure off of those. But um, it, there are added expenses when you invest in Class C product. Yeah, you know, it's it's wonderful talking about this stuff. I haven't really had this conversation with anybody for whatever, for no particular reason, but it's a fun conversation because I can relate to it so much. I guess my thought has been since I've been doing this podcast coming up on a year and, you know, learning more and more, just like we all do, the sense I've had on the single family thing is like if you're in Chicago, right, and that's your business, right, and you've got the systems, then you probably can scale it. And it's probably somewhat not a ton of risk, just if you really, really know what you're doing and you have very little leverage. Other than that, I think it's really very difficult to make it work. Yeah, I'm more of a fan of doing the work yourself. If you're going to be buying turnkey, you're essentially... Um, taking all the profit out of it. Everyone else has already made their profit. You know, the purchase, the person who sold the house, the person who bought it and then added value and is now selling it to you. Um, the turnkey provider, that's the middleman. You've got to pay all those people on the profit and even the equity on day one on turnkey properties, in my opinion, is actually negative on day one because of all those added costs. So if you're going to do single family, I suggest you buying them, rehabbing them, refinancing out and doing it that way. The Burr method is what they call it um, because you have more upside and more potential for, for those numbers that we talked about. Exactly. And so, I mean, to make it work, you got to buy them for nothing. Then you've got to be vertically integrated where, like you said, you're doing all. So you've got construction, you got a construction 
team that's like that you own, right? So everything's integrated and it becomes just a business in and of itself. And then I think you can make a lot of money doing that. But shy of that, it's real hit or miss. So enough on that. Thank you for indulging me uh, in being willing to dwell on on all the single family stuff. So you got the the video from you found Michael Blanc. And so like, what was the first multifamily deal you did? I mean, it's so impressive because here's a statistic I heard and I, I can't quantify it. I don't know how accurate it is, but there's a, a sentiment in it that I think is of value. And it's this that I heard that literally out of the amount of people that buy online courses, and that's a very broad term, but just generally only 3% actually take action and make it work, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be real estate. It could be stock trading. It could be, you know, trading land, you know, whatever the heck it is. And so the fact that you've actually made it work, you know, whether it's 3% or 10%, you deserve an amazing uh, amount of credit in my uh, estimation. And so what was the first thing in multifamily that uh, you did, Kyle? Yeah. So it took me 18 months to close on our first deal. And so um, I appreciate the kind words there. It did take a lot of work. And you know, the one thing I tell people when they get started in this business is be intentional, be persistent, and most of all, be consistent. And if you do those things, you know, you're going to beat out 90% of your competition because most people cannot sustain things for a long period of time. And that consistency is key. And that's really been the secret to our success is that we just have stayed consistent, persistent through this whole process. And so, you know, from the day I started the Michael Blanc Cross program till the day we closed on our first multifamily deal, it was 18 months. Uh, We got the deal two months after I left my full-time job. So we had not even done a deal before I left my full-time job to pursue this um, and then closed on that, you know, a few months later. So this is a, you know, smaller 42-unit property in Tucson, Arizona that I found by building relationships with a broker who, um, you know, threw it my way because we were visiting uh, at that time and he had happened to get that property under contract for himself that day. And he said, since you're in town, since you're coming to see me, let's go see this property. And a few weeks later, you know, we had the property under contract. So I'm a little confused. He got in contract for himself as the buyer, you mean? As the broker, sorry. Okay, all right. So okay. he he got the contract to list the property. He called me and I was the one that got it under contract to, to buy. I see. And so was it just because you were on your way there and you had built up a rapport with him as opposed to him giving it, you know, to somebody else? Like, was he one, is he one of the top brokers in Tucson or is he kind of starting out too? Or like, what were the the dynamics around it? Yeah, he's a younger guy just getting started. Um, you know, he had been in the business for a few years, but um, it was the right place at the right time. Uh, yeah, you know, I tell people a lot that these brokers in the hot markets get phone calls from California guys every day saying they want to buy real estate. And the only way to separate yourself from that is to show how serious you are. And so my wife and I used to actually drive to Tucson. We'd leave at two in the morning. We'd get there at eight or nine in the morning and we'd tour properties all day, meet with people, meet with brokers, and then drive back, get home at 1 a.m. the next morning and then go to work the next day because we still had our full-time jobs at this time. So, you know, that's what separated us. And, um, you know, he was impressed by our work ethic. And on one of those drives, he just called me and said, hey, look, I just got this property. Uh, come see it. You know, I know you're going to be here. So a little bit of right place at the right time. But if I wasn't making that effort to go out to the market, you know, it, it would have never happened. So, you know, I'm assuming that he knew, obviously, that you were going to need to raise money. Right. And so was he just confident that, hey, you know, you guys had had enough dialogue and were familiar enough that you were able to that you were going to be able to execute and pull the money together? You know, it's funny you ask that because probably a month or two before that, we had an offer in with another group who we were looking to possibly partner with. We were the best offer, but we pulled out because we were not confident in our ability to close. And so the broker, before I made my offer, said, what is different than it was three months ago? You know, what's going on? And those partners were not with us anymore. We had continued to build our relationships and our investor database to where we felt like we can raise the money. And the, the money raise on this one was a little bit less than that last deal. So the brokers are very aware of that kind of stuff. And you know, it's all about communicating with them. We had a presence online at that time. So we were we had a podcast going. We had several meetups. Our website was done. It was professional. 
Um, and I'm just talking to the brokers. You know, I call brokers every three weeks. I'm very consistent in everything that I do. And so by contacting them every three weeks over the course of a year, you've talked to them several times, you've built up a rapport and a relationship. And I think that went a long ways with getting that first deal. So the one deal that you backed out of, it was four months prior to the one that you were able to close. It was a different broker, correct? Uh, no, same broker. So, so we didn't, we never got that under contract. What we did is we were the highest price and the broker called us and they said, look, it's yours, but you've got to convince us that you can close. And we backed out. We said, I don't think we're ready, you know? And so four months later, when we went after this property that we did close on, that was their first question to us. You know, what's different now than was four months ago that you're ready to close on this deal. And so it was, this is such a cool story. So the first one what was it about the partner infrastructure that I guess you didn't have the confidence you were able to be able to close? What were the dynamics with that? Yeah, there was a little bit of hard money that was required to get this um, property under contract, which hard money means it's non-refundable earnest money on day one, which means even if you don't move forward, you lose that. And so it was about 25K. I wasn't the one that was going to be making that deposit. It was our other partner that would have had to do that. Um, and then the deposit would have eventually been $100,000 after due diligence. Um, and so our capital partner kind of backed out on us. And so we were left with either doing it ourselves uh, or, you know, not doing it at all. And we just felt like the risk reward there was probably better not to go with that deal. It was a little bit bigger of a, a raise, like I mentioned, too. And we weren't as confident as we needed to be to be able to move forward. So that that first capital partner, how did, how did you find that person? And were they were they in your market or were they in another part of the country? Like, how, how long did you know them? Yeah, you know, what we did to first start our building our network was uh, we started meetups in our local area in Long Beach, actually, and we started hosting them once a month. And, uh, you know, we met them by attending. Uh, they attended that meetup. So we got to know them for about eight months and really liked kind of what they were they were trying to do and what we were trying to do. So we tried to partner up and, and, you know, he and they have since done amazing. They are absolutely killing it. They partner with some other people and they're doing fantastic too. But when you're getting started and feeling out, um, you know, partnerships, it's really important to make sure you match. Well, you've got the same vision and goals. And I think they wanted to go a little bit different direction than we did. So ultimately I think it was best for both of us, but you know, we just met them by building our network. I mean, that's, that's what we do. We started with a meetup. Then we did a podcast. We started a second meetup, second podcast. Now we do a summit. Um, so it's all about building, number one, credibility, and number two, that network. I always say I want to be one phone call away from solving my next biggest challenge. And the only way to do that as we continue to grow is to continue to grow your network. You said they wanted to go in a different direction, kind of had a different vision. What was it compared to yours? Yeah. So, um, you know, they wanted to join a, so I did coaching programs, but I never joined a, like a big mentorship group that costs, you know, 20, 30, $50,000. I just did some one-on-one -on -one coaching that we paid for in education. And so they wanted to join a bigger network, get to know people, grow their team. And instead of taking down these smaller deals first, uh, you know, we were looking in the under $5 million space to be on, honest, under $3 million. Um, and a lot of people can scale much quicker if you join these larger groups, team up with people who are already doing it and get started in, you know, 10, 15, $20 million spaces. But for me, my vision was always to be a lead sponsor. So I was the lead because of my business experience and my management operations experience, I did feel like I can move directly into that lead sponsor role, which not a lot of people can do because they don't have that experience of managing businesses. Um, and so that's kind of where the differences were. And, uh, you know, we're still friends. And um, yeah, like I said, they're doing great and we're doing great. So what's their role or what is their intended role in these bigger deals to be JVs or LPs or they are still syndicating their deals. They're just part, they, um, they do some of the asset management, but mainly the underwriting um, and the accounting stuff. So they're partnering with other people and they're just in those roles? Exactly. Okay. But you know what's cool about it, what kind of excites me, and, and I don't 
I, I don't know that much, but what sounds cool about the five to three million is it, it's not as much of a shark tank. And uh, if you're willing to be patient and have enough relationships and if you're savvy enough, you might be able to make bluntly more money and greater returns, but just on less, on less money going into the deal. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting statement. I think a lot of people now are caught up in this in this game where it's how many how many units do you have? How many properties do you have? How many assets under management do you have? And you get caught up in that game and you don't realize that it's not really about how much you have, it's how much you're taking to the bottom line and how much you're making. And you're absolutely right. You know, you don't necessarily need to take down a 100 unit, 200 unit property to make um, you know, in some cases you may make more on a smaller property. So it's always important to take a look at the bottom line as well. Well, I mean, here's one of the things I'm I'm learning is um, is that once you get north of 200 units, and that number's maybe a little bit arbitrary, but you get my drift. Certainly, 300 units and and what have you is that you know more than 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was still kind of um, a ma and pa business, really. And now it's so it's become institutional. And so you've, you know, you've got pension money, insurance money, private equity money, you know, some of these deals in, well, all of the deals in Phoenix that just fit what I just described or Dallas or Tampa or whatever it is have, I shouldn't say all because of Clearly, there's an exception, but by and large, the bulk of them, you know, you've got 20 to 30 offers And the way my mind works is how in that environment uh, is one convinced that they're getting, you know, a great deal in every story. You could just take every offering memorandum and just change the name of the sponsor and the name of the project. And other than that, they are identical. <laughs> it's we're going to put a dog run in. We're going to put fencing in, in the ground floor, in, in the yards, we're going to put in and we're going to redo the leasing office and we're going to make a great fitness center and we're going to raise the rents 150 bucks. And so, and I'm not here to say that there isn't value in that and and because I don't know, I'm just naturally dubious and, and skeptical just because, you know, I've been involved with a, a multifamily syndicator one for 20 years and, and over that period of time have done really, really, really well. But to get there, it's been very checkered and very, very rarely do they hit the pro forma. And, and by the way, I don't mean that they're exceeding the pro forma. I mean, they underperform the pro forma the bulk of the amount of time. But the money I put in was 20 years ago because compared to you, Kyle, I'm an old man. And I was making so much money in my other, in my primary profession that I never really looked at it, frankly, for years. I never even looked at the statements, nothing, nothing. And I just started paying attention over the last couple of years and look at it. And uh, between refis uh, in perpetual 1031s and then looking at my cash flow today relative to what I put in, but again, 20 years ago, it's done very, very well, but it very rarely is, is adhered to a pro forma and it's usually just worse. So I remain unconvinced that the scenario today would be any different. And then people that will, investors that will tell you how well they've done in the last three to five years, that's like saying you've done well in the stock market in the last three years. Who hasn't? So I kind of love what you're doing. And by the way, I think I just talked for about three hours straight. Um, <laughs> my question is the 42 unit building that's in Tucson. So is that your first deal? That was our first deal in the multifamily space. Correct. And what year was that? And what did you pay? Uh, May 2019 is when we bought it. And so uh, we paid 1.65 million for that property. Fantastic. And so I'm ready to go to my to my calculator here, but maybe you have it off the top of your head. What is that per unit? It's about 39,000 per unit. Wow. So tell me like neighborhood class. I can't imagine we're talking class A here. So what's the story on it? Yeah. Neighborhood is an up and coming area off of Speedway, high traffic area. Uh, it's it's in the Midtown area of Tucson, just a couple miles from the school and uh, University of Arizona, a 1960s product that was basically under managed by an out of state investor, lived in California, wasn't paying attention to the property. We actually purchased it for less than what she purchased it for. She did purchase it in 2008, so not the greatest time to buy, but nevertheless, we did get it at a lower price and she was putting money into it in the beginning. So there were some renovations as well. We're actually under contract to sell that property already. So, you know, this was a six year business plan. We're going to sell it in 
year two, um, going into year three, uh, at our proposed year six purchase price or sales price, which is what, uh, 2.8 million. Oh, congratulations. How much did you put into it? About 200 grand. Oh, there you go. So now you're never going to turn back. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Is it in contract or you're going to sell it? It is under contract for sale. So we're set to close here in a couple of months. Why so long? Uh, It is an assumption of the loan. So this one is something we could talk about for a long time. But, you know, one of the first mistakes that I made getting into multifamily is I, well, you can look at it as a mistake or not, but you're you're taught in these circles to take on long-term debt and also, you know, you want a low interest rate, so you may go with a yield maintenance prepayment penalty. And what a yield maintenance prepayment penalty is, is it's there's no exact formula for it, but it's basically uh, measured off of the remaining interest that would have been paid for the entire life of the loan, the entire 10 years, and also tied to the 10-year treasury. So when rates drop, your yield maintenance prepayment penalty actually goes up. And if rates go up, your yield maintenance could drop. And so our prepayment penalty to get out of this loan right now is far too high. It's over 33% of the size of the loan would be our penalty if we were to sell it and uh, the buyer would add new debt on the property. So what we have to do is called an assumption. So the buyer is actually going to assume the existing debt and take over our loan. And so that process can take 60 to 90 days in and of itself. I see. But it's a great loan, correct? So it's actually a good deal for them anyway. Yeah, they're a longer term holder. So for that, it's it's fine. You know, long term debt um, is not bad in all scenarios. But if you're someone that wants to exit in the first couple of years, like this scenario, it's just not the right loan to put on it. Uh, but if you're a long term holder, then, you know, the prepayment penalty is less of a factor. I see. So when this broker, you were dealing with this broker in Tucson, younger guys starting out, built a relationship. You demonstrated that you're like, you differentiated yourself from all the other, you know, Californians because you actually drove, went there, met him. He was probably impressed that you, you know, did it at 2 a.m. in the morning, get back to your full-time job. So, I mean, anybody with a heart probably kind of felt something for you there. And, you know, and, and then from a business perspective, understood your level of determination. So when he listed that property, did he not put it on the market? He just told the seller, I've got a guy to take this thing down. And that was it. No, he did put it to market. Um, but we were the first one to make an offer. We were under negotiations in the first couple of days. And, you know, we did end up getting it below what the market price was. But, you know, because we had already seen the property, we had been out there three weeks earlier, we got a lot of due diligence done kind of in advance. And so the seller just wanted to get it sold. The broker said that they believed in us to get it done which we did. And we were able to get it under contract quickly after it went to market. So I like to say that we got that one pre-market because we were one of the first, I was the first person to see it. Um, And so we were able to do a lot of the due diligence on the property, um, even going to comps and checking the rents around the property the day we visited the property um, before it went to market. So if I'm sitting here and I'm the owner broker and I'm being told, hey, the guy's already done his due diligence. He really wants to buy it. He can pull the trigger and, and get this thing done. But I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, okay, but um, you know, let's put it on the market and, you know, see what we can get. Or were they just in the, was this woman in the frame of mind where she was just toast and just wanted to get rid of it and was just kind of like, hey, okay, fine. It's a bird in the hand. Exactly. And she had a number in mind, which was her bottom line number. And if and they told me if I get to that, they'll give it to me. Uh, she was losing money on the property and she just wanted to get out of it. It sounds like you waited for the opportunity and it was just perfect. And, and it sounds like it's the dynamic that everybody's really looking for, you know, with the owner that is really motivated and what a, what a wonderful thing. And so Clearly, you know, you're you're hitting a, a, I would say, certainly a home run, if not a grand slam. Was this something that you repurposed or is this was this units and they stayed units? Because I know you're doing, I think, because we got introduced for, uh, from a mutual contact that I think there's a hotel conversion, but I think that's more recent. So this was just units. You fixed them up. What was the process of what you did close of escrow to now? Yeah, absolutely. So it is just a regular multifamily that we decided to turn. When we bought it, actually, you know, it's 42 units and there were currently 18 units renovated. 
When we took it over, there ended up being 23 renovated units, which helped us save some money on the on the interior renovations. But we were just basically continuing with their renovation plan, about $3,000 a unit, just, you know, new paint, new flooring, new appliances, um, and some upgraded fixtures is basically what it was. We painted the entire building. We rebranded the entire building. Oh, one thing I did forget to mention, and one reason why we really liked the property, there was no way this property was being advertised, meaning the the phone number on the corner of the on the sign, it was disconnected. <laughs> you, search, you search for it online, it wasn't being advertised online. So the only way that they were actually able to lease the property up was this property management company uh, had several properties across their portfolio. If someone called the property management company and asked them availability, they would have to tell them about this property. So, you know, we're, we come from a background of management operations, and that is just a huge, obviously, no-no and an easy fix to get the property operated correctly. So that's the first thing that we did. Rebranded it, you know, got the phone number working, got online presence. Um, and then we were getting above the rents that we were projecting from day one. And so what we did actually at that point after about eight, nine months, we called the broker and got his opinion. He said, hey, look, we're really doing well here. What do you think? Are we are we going about this the right way? And he said, what if you introduce a premium unit, do about five or six of them, and see if you can get an added bump in rents in those? And that's what we did. And we ended up getting it. And so now we're able to sell the property as a value add property versus a turnkey. Because what we were going to do is just finish off all the units, everything would have been done on the property, and we would have sold the turnkey there's less of a buyer pool for turnkey buyers right now than there is for, you know, value add. So by implementing those five premium units, now the next buyer can go implement the remaining 36 units on those value adds um, and get added value from the property there. So, you know, after we implemented that, we basically fixed all the deferred maintenance as well. Roofs, this property has solar, you know, fixed up the laundry room, did all those things, fixed up the pool, added pool furniture. So the property looks very clean now from the outside looking in. And, um, and then that's when we decided to list it. Super, 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 super cool. How much time have you spent, I guess, maybe first year, I guess it's been almost two years. How much time? I'm sure initially more, but you could tell me how much time did you spend in Tucson? Yeah, we're a very hands-on group. So, you know, during the stabilization phase, which is the first 12 months, we're out there every other week. And so I was going out there very often. And, you know, even through COVID, I'm still out there once a month. You know, once this is one of the reasons why, too, we're moving to Arizona, I can just do a short hour and a half drive to Tucson uh, and I'll be in in the Phoenix area so we can check on our properties. But we're very hands on. So we like to be out there often. What made them premium units and what were the rents for the premium units once you created them? Yeah, they were about 80 to $90 more than what we were um, originally getting on the other renovated units. And so you're looking at about uh, $729 for a, a one bedroom and, and around $560 for a studio. And the difference between the uh, premium and the upgraded is that you got stainless steel appliances in one versus white. Uh, you do have a real backsplash in the kitchen. Uh, so it's a glass backsplash. You've got an accent wall and then you have upgrade, an upgraded lighting package. So all that, the difference between new appliances and all that kind of stuff costs about $1,200 um, in the difference between the renovation packages. And we're getting an extra 80 to 90 bucks a month. So your return on investment is, is very high in that scenario. You get it back like in a year. Yep. And what level of occupancy is it at now and six months ago, et cetera? Yeah. So we're at pre-leased 100% right now. We just had two people move out at the end of the month. Um, so we're at 90, 93% right now. But it, consistently since we've had the property, we've been 92% or higher. Has there been any delinquencies with, uh, with COVID? You know, knock on wood, not too much at this property. We have had a couple of people that haven't been able to pay rent and that's just going to happen, but they've been able to get assistance from, um, you know, either the government or local municipalities that are helping out as well. So we have not had high delinquency at this property. In fact, the last two months we've collected hundred percent of the rents. Wow. What is your experience been dealing with managers and or contractors? Oh, it's it's a it's a fun fun business. <laughs> um, we're lucky enough that the property management company that we chose has an in-house general contractor and renovations team, and I like that because they have more skin in the game. And you're not working with three or four different people; you're really working with one company to do a common goal. They already work together, so the communication is a lot better with one another versus having outside contractors. But you know, working with property management 
you know, I come from that world in the golf business, except I was the manager at that time. So I understand a lot of the things that happen. And you just have to have systems as an owner or sponsor or asset manager is what we like to call it, um, that hold the property management company accountable. A lot of people think, hey, I'm going to buy this apartment and the property management company will will run it and I'm done with it. And if that's your business plan, you're going to fail. Um, you know, the last five years, like you said, yeah, you probably could have made money doing everything wrong because the market's been so strong, but we're not in those times anymore. And so you need to have a strong management operations background to be able to, you know, hold your manager accountable. And we have weekly calls and we set expectations and we're not and when we're not hitting those expectations, we have a conversation to to get them realigned. Um, but it does take a lot of work on the management side to get things underway. Now, we have four properties with this management company now, so they understand how we work and we've set the expectation. And so it gets easier, but there is a little bit of handholding and training involved when you first work with a property management company. And so you've got three others then that you've acquired? Correct. Are those all in Tucson or where are they? We have one in Phoenix. So three in Tucson and one in Phoenix. And how many units are in each? Uh, We've got a 128 unit. We've got a 176 unit and then a 93 unit as well. Which one's the one in Phoenix? 128 units. And so are those projects and inevitable, you know, I'm sure they're all different. In terms of kind of the profile, are they kind of heavier value add? see neighborhood, but you know, what, what's kind of the, if there is an overall theme and if there's not, that's fine too, but how would you answer the question? Yeah, I think all of them have a very similar aspect in the sense that they're management plays. And that's what we really look for. Everyone says, oh, I'm going to buy a value add apartment and value add is so hard to find, right? And what is value add? And to most people, value add is upgrading the interiors, bumping the rents $150, and that's your value add. But we like to focus on the expense and management side. How can we get more out of this property there? So we look at inefficiencies from a management perspective. um, And that's all of these properties have that in common, whether they didn't have the right property management in place, uh, the owner wasn't putting enough money back into the building, whatever that is, you know, one of our common themes is fixing a lot of the deferred maintenance that goes directly into your day-to-day expenses to reduce your expenses. But they're probably all in that C-plus category as well. I see. And so in terms of how you, and I, I don't know if, if either of us care to or have the time to go through the amount of details we went on that on that first one, but I guess at high level, you know, how many investors do you get into each each and, you know, what's the average they put in and, and what do you perform out for returns and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I've got to be careful on how much I share on returns just because we do 506B offerings, which means we can't advertise. But, you know, essentially what we look for, uh, our minimums are about $50,000 for an investment and we target you know, eight plus percent cash on cash and 15% IRRs. And that's kind of where our general first look, what we're looking to get. In five to seven year hold? Uh, Yeah, three to three to seven. You know, it's it's kind of a wide range, but it really depends on where the market is. You know, the market's been strong the last couple of years. So we have an opportunity to maybe exit a little bit sooner. Um, And then, you know, if the market were to take a dip or, you know, the business plan takes a little bit longer because of a COVID or something like that, then we may hold on to it longer. Or if the property is just really kicking butt and everyone wants to just cash flow off of it, we may hold on to it longer in that scenario as well. On the three, the three acquisitions, two through four that we're talking about, how much per unit approximately on fixing the units up? Yeah, so th- that's where it differs. You know, Phoenix and Tucson are two completely different markets, although they're in the same state and very close to one another. You're just not going to be able to bump the rents as much in a Tucson as you would in a Phoenix, and the upgrades are not as necessary. There's a, such th- such a thing as over improving the units to where there's just no ROI. So. You know, their lower end renovations in the Tucson market were probably spending three grand, thirty five hundred a unit um, on the interiors, whereas we're spending fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars in our Phoenix property because we're doing new cabinets, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, and installing washer dryers. You know, we've got baseboards, nice flooring, six panel doors, things like that. Wow. How many hours do you work in a week? Uh way too many. <laughs> right now. We actually just hired an executive assistant 
to help us, uh, you know, alleviate some of the things that we don't necessarily, we need to get done, but we shouldn't be doing them. We're also looking to hire an asset manager here in about four or five months. Um, that'll help with some of the day-to-day management as well. But, uh, you know, I'm working 60 plus hours a week. That's for sure. Got it. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that you weren't. Do you have a, uh, a view on, you know, looking over the next year, couple of years of sticking in Phoenix and Tucson? Are there even any other, you know, Arizona cities? I'm kind of joking, but I'm sure there are some, but I mean, is there a tertiary market that you think there's growth in and there would be opportunity or do you feel yourself orienting yourself more towards Phoenix for any given reason? I mean, what, what's your thinking along those lines? Yeah, we want to continue to expand in the Arizona market as a whole. We believe in both of those markets very much. And when I say Phoenix, we're talking greater Phoenix. So that includes things like Mesa, Tempe, Glendale, North Phoenix, even Goodyear would be a tertiary market that we're looking at. It doesn't have a ton of multifamily um, value add stuff there, but that's probably an hour outside of Phoenix um, is an area that we're looking at. Uh, and then Tucson, we're very hot on. I just think it's it's got a lot of room for growth, uh, low cost of living as it sits right now, high rent growth, high population growth, a uh, lot of job diversity coming in. And a lot of those jobs are tech jobs now. So uh, I feel strongly in that in these markets. We probably will add another market here in a few years, but we want to make sure we have a stronghold in Arizona. We have the right relationships and we fully understand the market before we move on. Uh, there's a lot of people out there right or wrong, who just go out and buy in the best markets, but they don't really know the market as well as you should. Uh, we like to really touch and feel our market and see it gentrified in front of our faces versus you know reading it on a market report. I understand. Uh, makes a lot of sense. How, how many investors approximately have been in your last few deals You know where it's been north of 100 units? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of investors. You know, when you're first starting out, we're not taking in large, large chunks, but uh, anywhere from 35 to 75 investors on each deal. Gosh, and how often do you hear from them? So we're a very high touch organization. So, you know, we send out a monthly, well, now with COVID, actually two monthly emails updating them on the property. We also have a quarterly webinar call where anyone can hop on and can actually ask any questions to us. We go over financial data and trends and KPIs. And then I also contact every one of our investors every quarter with a personal phone call. That's very, very nice, man. Gosh, I don't think I've ever gotten one of those. They're, uh, you know, we just, we, we're a relationship group. We want to build relationships. We're not the group that's going to have a thousand investors. We want a hundred to two hundred very tight knit investors who are, you know, end up being our friends and uh, long term partners. I see. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it. Well, I, I absolutely love what you're doing, and I am. Uh, I think I'm going to go take a nap. I've exhausted <laughs> myself with these questions. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, you know, looking forward to continuing to get to know you better. Um, how, Kyle? Shall our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, you can go to our website, which is aptcapitalgroup.com. And we actually offer a free passive investors guide there for anyone who wants to learn the things you should know before you get started in investing in real estate. Well, I have enjoyed this uh, conversation with you immensely. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a number of people that are like wise, sage, seasoned investors with, a, like you said, a ton of units. But talking to you is, is more exciting because it's starting out and it, it's the beginning of an adventure. So I'm so glad we did this together. Yeah, awesome. A pleasure being on. You got it. And I will talk to you very soon.